Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. It is time for us to step into the shadows and unveil a collection of stories that are guaranteed to give you the chills. Let's not waste any more time as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. If you find yourself deep in the hills of Utah, do not look at the sky. Written by Replexion. In the world of a private reporter, one can and likely will be subject to a variety of strange occurrences. The allure to this for me at least is that I strive to be the first to document them and decode the underlying mysteries. The story I'm working on at the moment is unlike anything that I've seen before. Truly, it's the most bizarre incident that I'd ever had the pleasure of investigating. Well, maybe pleasure isn't the right word to describe yesterday's events, but I would be a liar to say that this one hasn't gotten me riled up. My name is Louis Amar, They'll most refer to me as Lou in person. Perhaps excessive syllables aren't worth the time for most, but I've never objected to the name. I've been a private reporter, investigator to an extent, for the majority of my adult life. I suppose that in some ways, my passion is similar to that held by mountain climbers, cavers, and other such hobbyists. In the endless search for virgin territory, to sink the teeth into. But as evidenced by my experience, some things are not worth the intrigue and are better left alone to stagnate outside of public awareness. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me begin at the beginning, at the flame which ignited the trailing views. I live in a relatively large town in Utah, you know, the Red Rock type of place broiling summers and usually mild winters. The cold is dispelled much by the town's surroundings, sheltered by hills and mountains, though on the flip side, it turns into a greenhouse out of Hades in the hotter months as a result. All of this started yesterday. I'd been running dry on juicy stories to dig into for weeks, and was just going about my weekly routines. I found myself ambling down the cracked pavement, heading to my favorite grocery store to stock up. I mean, there wasn't anything massively special about Rockamart, but I always found the staff there to be the friendliest of all, often finding myself late to other deadlines for the day, as I lost myself in conversation with Jimmy, the store clerk. My usual venture was cut short when I spotted a boy stumbling down the road not the pavement, the road. He couldn't have been more than 17 and he seemed to be in a fugue state. This wasn't a huge shock to me, seeing as the heat could quickly force heat stroke on a person if they aren't careful about sunscreen and water intake. 
even in the spring months. I slowed my pace, scuffing my trainers on the asphalt, and whipped out my phone to take a recording of this, just in case anything concerning happened. It took a considerable amount of time for the teen to wobble his way close enough to discern anything else, but when he did, my worries started to blossom upon seeing the details. The first thing that I noticed was his eyes. He didn't seem to have any control over them whatsoever, instead lazily rolling around in his sockets like poorly fitting glass eyes. Full-on googly eyes. I'm glad that I decided to film him in retrospect because it became apparent that he was babbling about something. His words were messy, as if haphazardly plucked out of an alphabet soup. The only words I caught at the time were, we take, it takes, can't stop knowing, and give it back. Of course, all this meant nothing to me at first, simply these sun-beaten ramblings of someone who needed assistance. I moved toward him with the intention of helping, which seemed to draw his attention. He almost tripped over as he turned toward me before messily walk-jogging his way over. In an instant, he had his dry, almost scaly hands wrapped around my shoulders, uttering further nonsense in an apparent attempt to tell me something of utmost importance. I kept recording, though the footage consisted only of the boy's dusty tank top and frayed jean shorts. Other than his previous phrases, I wasn't able to catch on to much else, other than his frequent repetition of variations of Stop thinking. I tried to pry myself from his grip, but his hands were white-knuckled in determination to tell me something, an effort which in the end amounted to nothing. I started to panic, fearing that he might accidentally hurt me in a stupor. Images of my skull cracked open on the curb flashed across my mind, when a strange movement within his eyes caught my attention. It looked like his eyes were reflecting some dazzling light source, dancing around on their glassy surfaces. I only saw this for a moment before the kid's eyelids drooped and he loosened his grip. He proceeded to stumble his way down the road a while longer, before catching his foot on the curb and meeting the fate that I had previously imagined awaiting me. I heard a sickening crack as his forehead struck the dry pavement and the shape of his head notably shifted on the inside. Of course, I was stunned at what I had just witnessed, but I was present enough to notice that despite such a fatal head injury, blood leaked from his head as infrequent droplets, leading to bright crimson splashes against the contrast of the drab asphalt. Normally, such an accident would leave a miniature sanguine pond in its wake, but not this time. The weight of the situation hit me as I resisted curiosity to reel myself back from disassociative awe. My camera app was still recording, so I ended the video and pulled up the keypad, dialing 911 and requesting immediate medical assistance. During the 5 or 10 minutes before the ambulance arrived, I made my way over to the boy and rolled him onto his side. With his hair hanging back, I could see the injury in full and it wasn't as bad as I had suspected. Still no signs of life were left in the eyes of this poor kid, and his chest remained still, 
What lay before me was no longer a person, no thoughts or hopes bounding around in that dead skull. The paramedics were quick to swipe him up and ship him away, but the futility was evident in their expressions, eyes hanging low. After they drove away at the solemn speed of a hearse, I was left standing alone, with no evidence of what had just happened, other than a few stray red drops on the road and, of course, my footage. I went about my grocery shopping without any attempts at socializing, and I hurried home so as to review the footage, though most importantly to back it up. A phone can be a fleeting thing in comparison to the online storage service that I had been subscribed to for some years now. So I got home, unpacked, and then set my focus on rewatching the video, over and over, in hopes that I could unearth something that I hadn't at first noticed. Honestly, the guy was just so out of it. I wasn't able to decrypt very much other than a few things. First, I noticed a detail that had been glossed over before. Around the upper portion of the kid's head, there was a very faint mark, circling the perimeter of his skull. It was no surprise that I hadn't noticed it, seeing as how faint it was, but it looked something like pink scar tissue. There was no point in going any further with this, with no background on this guy, but it went into my notepad nonetheless. Second and lastly, I was indeed able to make out some more of his words, but the rest remained a nonsensical tumble dryer of letters and sounds. Most of what I could discern is irrelevant to my writing here, but at two points in the video, I distinctly made out the words. North, North, West. No, West, Western. In the up, hills, at the... Between these peaks, the red and the dust and the red and the rust. This may seem useless to even consider building upon, but as a journalist, those words made a big difference in this new project. Well, not at first, at the end of the day, it was just a tragic event, a life removed too soon. But my loose transcript proved its true worth after meeting with one of my good friends, Davis who just so happened to be in the local police division. I had contacted him about what I had expected, and to my surprise, he replied with an invitation, rather than the fleeting interest that I had expected. Apparently, an autopsy was required as the boy's death couldn't be sufficiently explained by his head injury, which was found to be minor. Davis asked if I was free to meet in a local park later in the day, so we could discuss the mystery surrounding this kid. Something about a staggering post-mortem discovery. So as planned, I met with Davis on the Jerusalem Green. I found him smoking on a park bench overlooking the park, but he didn't seem overjoyed upon seeing me. He looked more, well, paranoid than anything. After finding my seat, he skipped any formalities and was straight to the point. So, uh, you know, I could get in a lot of crap for this, Lou. I don't want to be here too long. Yeah, yeah, of course, I really appreciate your help here, man. Okay, I'm gonna make this quick. This is the kind of case that gets the attention of the higher-ups, so I'll tell you this once and only once. The kid's name was Aiden O'Leary. His serious tone quickly had the same effect on me and I lowered my voice, glancing left to right a couple of times to make sure that 
we had no unwelcome eavesdroppers. We sat in silence for a moment as I stared at Davis expectantly. So, you know how they had to do the autopsy. Couldn't determine a believable cause of death. So they cut him open, yada yada, while they, um... They ended up examining his brain, sawing through bone. You get the picture. Uh, that's... Did they figure out what happened to him? Brain damage, a stroke, something like that. They found nothing. Oh, well, that's unfortunate, I guess. No, Lewis, they found nothing. Literally, kid was hollow-headed, and not in the metaphorical sense. No brain, not even any residual parts. Some weirdo cut his head open, most likely. Even being second-hand to this revelation, I was shocked and appalled that anybody could do this to an adolescent. It dawned on me after processing what I had just heard. The glaringly obvious sore thumb about the whole thing. Then, how was he alive, and how long for? My question garnered no response. Instead, Davis just sat there, dead-eyed, and slowly shaking his head. I relented and just sat with him, sharing a moment of baffled silence. I can't tell you anything else, man. I'm already risking my job, so if you don't mind, I'll be off now. Nice seeing ya. And with that, he was gone, back on his daily schedule. The walk back was slow, energy redirected into my thoughts as I ran through the endless possibilities of explanations, which might change the pure impossibility of the incident. Even after getting back and sitting at my desk, my fingers lay idly on the work surface as my mind raced in a desperate effort to understand. I haven't come to any adequate conclusion yet, so I've decided I'm going to look into the kid's identity. See if I can't find his socials, figure out what he's been doing, where he was last seen. You get the idea. I'll be contacting my partner in crime, Annie, also a journalist. Hopefully, she'll help in having a different perspective, something like that. Hopefully, she's not too busy, but honestly, I have a feeling she'll shelf whatever she's working on in favor of looking into this. So, if it works out, we'll be spending the rest of today doing research. I'll post a follow-up, if or when we figure something out. A lot has happened during the past day or so. I've calmed down a bit, so hopefully, my update will make some more sense. Much to my delight, Annie was enthralled to join me in this and came over to my place pretty much as soon as the text had appeared as read. I brought her up to speed on the info that I've gotten, thanks once again to Davis. Annie is much more techie than I am, so she took the reins in researching any possible leads concerning the kid's online presence. After a few search queries and new tabs, she found a matching Facebook page for Aiden O'Leary. Luckily for us, he seemed to be quite active on the site, posting pictures and videos of events and places that he had been to. Of course, what we were looking for was anything that could hint us to his last known location. And lo and behold, that's exactly what we found. Well, we assumed that to be so, given his following radio silence. It was a selfie picture of himself and a friend on a hiking trail somewhere up in the hills. Both were kitted out with the generic set of backpacks, cargo shorts, sunglasses, the whole package. 
the image was captioned. What a great day to be out in nature. Wish you guys could see the view from up here. Even better, there was a location tag on the post. Nothing specific, of course, but it was labeled as being in or around the Salt Point Trails, a network of time-worn paths hewn throughout an area of the local hill range. The place was almost a 50-minute drive away, which on the scale of the country, it's nothing at all. With some additional link clicking, we discovered that the buddy he had been out with, along with himself, had been reported missing over two weeks ago. I don't mean to be rude, Davis, but during that time I hadn't even heard of this, let alone any efforts to track them down. Anyhow, Annie and I had a free schedule for a good few days, so we decided on heading out there straight away. We made sure to pack all the necessary things, food, hiking poles, a small tent, probably more power banks than we needed. You get the picture. I may be a journalist, but I've gone on my fair share of tracks living in this part of the country. I mean, how could you not? Sure, it can get sweltering in the summer months, but quite frankly, that is easily ignored in favor of seeing the exquisite landscape. And besides, it was springtime anyway. Not too hot, not too cold. Just right. I was relieved to find Annie's backup screenwash bottle by the time we had arrived. Must have used two-thirds of the tank already washing away the orange dust that gathered around the windshield the way iron filings would to a magnet. Annie isn't a small person by any means, but with myself being 6'1", I was bestowed the burden of carrying the heaviest load. In other words, I ended up lugging the tent back up rocky, arid slopes and through spiky tall grass. No luck found us for over an hour as we plodded on through the heat. After summiting a particularly merciless hill, I was caught off guard by Annie pointing something out with an abrupt, Look! I came to a stop and I dropped my pack, giving myself a breather. What, if you're gawking at those trees over there? Just keep in mind that we didn't come out here to absorb nature. Huh? No, Lou. Look at the ground over there. I followed the direction of her outstretched finger to see what looked like heavy and rushed footprints in the sand ahead of us. They weren't anything special, maybe left behind by a jogger or something. I didn't really understand what had Annie so captivated. Uh, do you really need me to point it out for you? An investigative journalist. She gasped, still out of breath. Yeah, actually, they're just footprints. No luck. Clearly, whoever made these were running in the opposite direction to us, and they lead off the trail just over there. I looked over in turn, and she was right. It still wasn't anything noteworthy, but it did stir my thinking brain into wondering where this person had come from, out in the brush, and why they had been in such a hurry. No stone left unturned, and he said smugly, that's not even how you use that. Fine, noted. We continued along the track, heads swiveled to the left to see if we could track the prince any further. To our surprise, the prince came back up onto the trail, at which point a large area of scuffed sand and rocks became apparent. Hmm, a scuffle it looks like. 
What from now? I pondered. Annie simply nodded as she observed the surroundings, panning around for any further details. She seemed to do a double take and stared at something. Does that look like a rock to you? She said, her tone lowered. I gazed over to what she was seeing and was struck with a similar confusion. A football-sized stone lay beside the disturbed sand, but I had never seen anything like it. Parts of it shined, glistened with an odd, desaturated hue. I say that because the stone here is generally orange or red, but the spots where the sun glinted off were much closer to gray in color. And on top of that, it had a bizarre texture to it, wavy and grooved almost like. Annie cautiously approached the foreign object and then crouched down, swiping brunette strands out of her face. She prodded it with her walking pole. My brow furrowed a further when in response the thing jiggled, like it was made of jelly. Wait, no, holy crap. Lou, it's a brain. What? A brain. Now I'm no expert, but that looks awfully similar to a human brain. The realization made me recoil in disgust, and with morbidly comedic timing, the smell hit my nostrils. The sickly sweet stench of past fresh meat festering in the midday heat. But it didn't smell like your bog-standard rotten flesh. Now there was an almost smoky hint to it. One could have chalked that up to the sun acting as an open cooker, but after willing myself to inspect the brain more closely, I realized it was covered in scorches and severe burn marks. Hey, it doesn't look like there was any wildfire here, right? I asked Annie, who had also noticed the oddity. Well, if there was, it was a stealthy one. She half-heartedly joked. Not the time, Annie. We should have turned back then. I don't know why we kept going. Maybe because I had been running dry on meaty stories. Maybe to get to the bottom of this conundrum, I don't know. It was irresponsible, yeah, but something deeper in the mountains was calling out to me, asking me to come and see what was hiding. The terrain was more forgiving now at the very least, and with these sunset came a cool blanket of dusk air, which felt great. We settled on walking for another 30 or 40 minutes before setting up camp and calling it a day. I couldn't help but feel uneasy hiking through the quickly darkening valley, though thankfully the right of the path was mostly clear, giving the growing moonlight a straight shot to illuminate our way. Darkness took residence in the shrubs and trees around us. At some point, I can't remember when, I got the distinct feeling that we were being watched, from somewhere out of sight. A few times I thought that I heard rustling nearby, but remained vigilant, keeping the lid on the creeping dread that wished to overtake me. I was so focused on settling my mind that I didn't even notice Annie had stopped dead in her tracks, and I bumped into her back. I went to apologize before seeing her frozen stance, understanding that it was best to keep quiet. I followed her gaze to see, to my horror, a hairy face peeking out from the bushes to her left. The fluorescent green eye shine from Annie's torch betrayed a mountain lion. Of course, just our luck. The thing had probably only just now come out to hunt, 
and its eyes were now set on us. If you ever come across a mountain lion out in the hills, you can be sure that it saw you a good while before you noticed it. It seemed to register its hiding place had been foiled and it slinked out onto the path ahead of us. Slowly back away, I whispered. I remembered then the rule of making yourself as big as possible, but we had no coats to spread open. So I came closer to Annie and said, Hey, get up on my shoulders really quick. She understood my intent and followed my instructions. After I had bent down onto one knee, I grabbed her shins in my hand and stood back up with some effort. The big cat didn't seem to like this and recoiled momentarily, before composing itself and letting out a low growl. If you've ever heard the growl of a mountain lion, you'll understand the primal fear that it instills. Methodically, it resumed its movement towards us, testing the limits to see how close it could get before striking. Panicking, I kicked a stone at it with as much force as somebody carrying a person could give. It yowled in surprise for a second, but this one was determined and continued its approach. It was then that the rapidly forming cloud formation that smothered the moonlight came to my attention. Somewhere far above the peaks ahead, swirling gray clouds grew into a dense mass of mind-bending coils. It happened so suddenly that I almost dropped Annie. An intense light flickered on from somewhere inside that murky nebula before an intense beam of light erupted from within. It was the most powerful spotlight I had ever seen panning across the valley in strange movements, searching for something. Every time it swiveled, a distant vibration could be heard, which I imagine is what also drew the mountain lion's attention away from us. Before it could even turn all the way to look, the white floodlights fell upon it. Instantly, the cat fell onto its side, yowling and screeching while it convulsed in pain. Even from a distance, I could see its hair as singe and smoke, its skin bubbling as if exposed to the surface of the sun, before pale white flame spewed out from its eyes, ears, nose, and mouth, and in an instant completely engulfed the wailing animal. The poor creature screamed unrelentingly for what felt like hours, when in reality it was more like twenty seconds or so, until just as quickly as it had settled, the spotlight started its frantic motion once more. Annie broke our shared stupor and pushed herself off my shoulders with adrenaline-fueled agility. She grabbed me by the wrist and hauled me over to a large boulder off to the right to take cover. Mere seconds after we had reached it, the gleam cast the rock shadow, which stretched out far behind us. There we sat, shivering in fear contrasting the unmoving light that waited for us to emerge. For the following five minutes, my heart yearned to leap out from my chest. So when we were once again plunged into darkness, the relief washed over me in waves. I waited another few minutes looking into Annie's wide and gray eyes, before daring to glance out from behind the rock. Those clouds were gone, but underneath where they once were, I saw something that somehow I hadn't initially seen. There looked to be some building higher up on the slope of a large hill. It was dark and distant, but even then I recognized the architecture to be unlike any other structure that you might find in the state. Heck, the country even. 
After feeling like I had stared longer than considered safe, I returned behind the boulder and looked over to Annie who was just as shaken as I was. With an effort to ignore the smell of burnt hair and flesh, we set up our tent without a word and climbed inside. Oh, thank God there's reception out here. The sole fact of having access to the internet calmed my nerves enough for me to write this up. We're going to sleep this feeling off, hopefully. I even told Annie about that building up ahead. I'll have to show her tomorrow. But even then, it'll take some convincing to get her to come. I know, I know, how could I possibly want to go any further after what I had just seen? Call me crazy, but the events of today have only added more fuel to the fire of my intrigue. Hey, good morning. You sleep okay? Was my first sentence of the day, knowing full well that neither I nor Annie got any sufficient rest. I don't think anyone could after watching a mountain lion be torched into a mass of blackened flesh and bone by a giant spotlight in the sky. After we got up, I hesitantly went over to the remains of said animal to get a closer look. As a journalist, you have to overcome even the most repulsive of details for the sake of having an accurate write-up. As I had expected, the mountain lion now more resembled a flaky hunk of charcoal, completely burnt out. But even in this state, tiny flickering sprites of those pale flames danced around the edges of its frame, as well as inside its mouth. I took pictures, of course. All the more resources to use later on, however morbid. Annie stood at a distance, letting me do the examination. She crossed her arms, each grasping the other, her face painted with a pitied grimace. She was most definitely reluctant, but her interest was stolen away after I pointed out the peculiar structure a mile or so up ahead. That isn't to say she had brushed off the situation, though. What is that architecture? It's so familiar, but not exactly. Annie said, bemused, still with some lingering anxiety. It reminds me a little of those Hindu temples. You know, the, uh, what's the word? Recursive? I think the right term is tiered, but yeah. If that there is an entrance, though, it looks more fitting for a Buddhist monastery, replied Annie. I looked for the structure she was referring to and quickly came to a similar conclusion. We were still too far away to make out any finer details, but a large doorway on its left side was embraced by a curving, frame-like structure accented with red and gold. Well, should we go and check it out? I asked. Annie went to speak but hesitated, and the words sat on her tongue. She breathed and then said shakily, that's where that that thing was above there, right? I mean, yeah, but it couldn't penetrate to simple rock, let alone a whole building. Plus, it doesn't seem to like the daylight. Come on, Annie, this could be the biggest scoop of our lives. Admittedly, I cringed a little at that last statement, but it seemed to lighten her mood a bit. It still took some more convincing, but eventually she acquiesced. God, how could I have been so stupid? It wasn't worth it. It really wasn't worth it. We made it to the slope below the building in good time, but the climb was definitely the most challenging. 
The loose rocks and grass provided poor footholds, and I became confused as to how anyone was intended to travel to and from this place. By the time that we reached the top, we were both coated in sticky burrs from the knee down. Those spiky little balls, I mean, that cling on for dear life, no matter how much you try to brush them off. It was even more beautiful up close, intricately carved supports lining the outside, and the gold paint which glimmered with pride. We stood outside for a while and took some photos, obviously. During that time, we neither saw nor heard any signs of life at all. While this eased us into entering, it also had a vaguely sinister undertone. All that was just feelings from first impressions, but we should have listened to our guts. Entering, we made it a short distance in before a robed figure revealed themselves from behind a pillar, with such elegance that the lustrous fabric seemed to dance. Annie was startled, but I jumped backwards at least three feet. The person who we found was a man was dressed in blue, red and white robes, and had a slightly off-putting haircut. Concentric rings of shaven hair centered around the top of his head. He looked between us once, twice, and his mildly irritated expression grew into a knowing smile. Welcome, friends. You understand this is trespassing, yes? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. We were hiking through the area and saw this place up above. Decided to check it out. We'll leave if it's causing any trouble. I apologized. Oh, don't fret. This is a place of peace. If you would like, I can show you around this haven. All I ask is that you don't raise your voice. I looked over to Annie and then back to the man and nodded in silent agreement. Wonderful. My name is Damamoka. I'm a priest of sorts. Nice to meet you, we said in unison. I might have butchered the spelling of his name, but it's correct, phonetically. Please, follow me this way. There is much for you to see. This was crazy. What religion was being practiced here, I wondered. There weren't any giveaways in particular, but my attention was quickly drawn to the bizarre layout of the place. We turned and snaked through narrow corridors like navigating a maze. The thought occurred that, in an emergency, we might not be able to find our way out alone. But I pushed that notion away after Dom led us into a long room wider than the passages before. The sides of the chamber were carved into large steps upon which sat several monks, appearing to be deeper in meditation than I thought possible. I could just barely make out the gentle rising and falling of chess, but no other movement otherwise. Each monk wore a strangely shaped hat. They were shaped like a funnel, one end wider as it fit over their heads, and the other upper end also fanned out into a smaller open mouth. I stealthily snapped some pictures of the scene, hoping our guide wouldn't notice, but he didn't. Thought so, at least. Annie piped up intrigued. So, how long do these guys stay like this? Uh, per day, I mean. Oh, it varies much. We have no desire nor need to rest in this state. Some have been communing here for months, others a year or more. Oh, what, a year? Nobody can meditate for that long, can they? 
Annie's confused barrage had no effect on Dom as he continued his slow strides down the length of the room. As I've said, they commune, not meditate. You are indeed correct. Even the most dedicated are unwilling to empty their mind for such long periods. That is not what our practice entails. I was hooked now. Communing, what do you mean? He did not reply, instead of beckoning us to follow him to the next location of interest. After more of the same coiling tunnels, we emerged out into the biggest room yet. The outer walls were lined with small carved pillars which segmented the view of the scenery, and the floor was so polished that I could practically see the pores on my face when I looked into it. Incense burners littered the area, and what appeared to be brass tools of some kind were hung on the pillars. But by far the most staggering feature was the gargantuan object that rested in the center of the room. Dozens more monks encircled the object, all still and silent statues. The more I tried to work out what this thing was, the more that I was pulled to it. There was some allure to it which transcended any rational explanation. Ah, here we are. This, my friends, is our connection to the Great Well, stalwart and steady. Annie was trapped in the same trance as I and slowly circled the artifact in awe. Is it a tree? she asked. Dear me, no, chuckled Dom. No, this is what remains of one of the nine beings. It is how we're able to communicate and weave our minds into the great well. Upon processing his words, I came to the realization that we were standing before a skull of immense proportions. The symmetry gave it away, but it didn't resemble any species that I could think of especially any of that size. The thing was bigger than a school bus. Scaffolding adorned one side, with steps leading up to the top. The square plate on its crown looked out of place. It looked like a wooden hatch with a brass handle affixed. I thought back to what Dom had said and a question came to mind. You keep talking about this well. I'm guessing that's metaphorical like it's not an actual well where you would bring out water from. Before I could get an answer, two others entered the room. The simplest notion that there were more people here that weren't among the unmoving monks that shocked me, if only for a moment. Dom's face lit up at this. Good morning, Yurhemi. I see that this one is ready, marvelous. Indeed, his affinity for the well is exceptional, I'm sure of this said the man called Yurhemi, in a rather breathy voice. He escorted with him a monk of younger age, leading him to the wooden steps beside the great skull. They ascended and upon reaching the top, Yurhemi gently grasped the young man's head and muttered something to him in a whisper that I couldn't quite make out. His face was solemn in that moment, but that quickly fell away to a blank expression. The man then turned and knelt down over the hatch, reaching out his hand and pulling it open. He remained on his knees and bowed his head forward, where he remained still. At this point, I started recording a video of the ordeal. This was way too interesting to pass off. Yurhemi then produced a metallic object from somewhere. 
I didn't see how he could have stored it within his robes, but nonetheless, there it was. It was a large, flat band shaped into a ring, bearing tiny mechanisms on the interior. Slit-like holes with thinner protrusions emerging from them. I began to grow concerned when he leant down and carefully fitted the object onto the young man's head. And then he... God, it all happened so quick. Your Hemi engaged a lock of some kind and then with great force pulled out a lever from the ring that I hadn't noticed before. The switch was flipped 180 and the band had then twisted around the monk's head. So much red gushed down the man's face. It was a spilled paint can of crimson hue. He shuddered, whimpered, and cried all the while, struggling to stay in place as your Hemi performed one final twist. With it came a repulsive sound of suction as he pulled the tool up and away, taking with it the top of the monk's skull. My legs felt weak, and all I could muster was a frail whimper in response to what had just happened. Annie wide-eyed had one hand on the wall behind us, steadying herself. I forgot my phone was still recording, only capturing my feet on the shiny floor, before I realized and stopped the video. Sliding my phone away, I stammered out to no one in particular. I, uh, I think we should go now, Annie. Let's go. But Dom interjected. Oh, my apologies. I could not allow that. You agreed to see all that is here, yes. You haven't yet witnessed the full ceremony. I made a move toward the doorway and he brought his fingers to his lips in response. By blowing through his fingers, a high-pitched whistle rang out. And at the exact same moment, four of the previously dormant monks shot up and walked towards us with purpose. In groups of two, they held Annie and myself by the arms and turned us to face the grotesque ritual once again. This time, Yurhemi held a pair of long-handled scissors and inserted them into a slit made at the base of the young man's skull. He snipped once, twice, three times, and then removed the instrument. Next in the horrifying slideshow of surgical operations, he used what I presumed to be the same scalpel that had made the previous incision, and began to slice away at the edges of the exposed gray matter. Off peeled the translucent veil from the brain's folds, and your Hemi allowed it to slide out into his hand with a wet slap. Please, please, I don't want to look, let us go. I yelped as your Hemi once more held the bloodied scissors. Reaching down into the vacant cranium, he went on to cut twice, severing what I can only imagine to be the poor man's optic nerves, and I heard the monk whispering, Dark. It's so dark. I felt hot vomit churn in the back of my throat as the free brain was held up, like Simba and the Lion King. Before it was dropped into the open hatch and it was gone. The hatch was closed and your Hemi returned to the monk with the circular instrument, still holding the skull's upper half. He placed it back onto the man's head and fastened it with a twist of some dial or knob. By this point, the monk whose body had been so violated now looked calm and serene. No more agonized cries escaped his mouth and his shivering slowed to a stop. Yurhemi bent down and rose again, holding a metal jug of some kind. He opened the lid, allowing steam to billow out and plunged a brush inside. 
Bringing it out, I could see that it was now coated in hot and melted wax, which he then painted around the head of the newly thoughtless monk. But finally, he produced another of those funnel-shaped hats and pressed it firmly onto the man's head, holding it for several moments until the wax had set. It was over, thank God. The monk rose to his feet and was escorted back down the scaffolding. After reaching the floor, he paced out into the room on his own and sat down amongst the others in silent communion. I could only repeat, Why? Though the more pressing question that didn't occur to me at the time was how. After a deep inhale, Dom declared, Glorious it is. Today a person was lost, but a receptor gained who will one day be accepted by the vast wall and guide us in the forthcoming days. I was dumbstruck at how the man in front of me saw joy in whatever had happened. Still a false hope grew that we had been subjected to all he intended us to see. Okay, that was definitely something. Can we go now? Annie said in a weak and croaky voice. I implore you to stay. If your thoughts are of pain or worry, dispel them. We have no intent on harming you or your friend here. And with that, the false hope was shattered into a thousand pieces, and we were practically carried by the robotic monks to a room up in the next floor. They shut us inside and left us. The far side bore the same ornate pillars, though much more closely packed together, so that they more so resembled cell bars than anything. I waited for a few minutes and then tried to leave. The door wasn't locked, but swung open to reveal two of the stone-faced monks, as if they were waiting for me to try it. In perfect synchrony, they stepped forward and shoved me back inside, pulling the door firmly closed once more. So yeah, as of now we're being held against our will in some temple of an indiscernible faith. I said it once and I'll say it again. Thank you for the internet. I don't know what I would do if I couldn't communicate what we're going through right now. I don't trust the priest, but I can only hope that he is not a liar. I would say pray for us, but I doubt God's grace covers this domain. If I still have the means to update everyone by the end of tomorrow, I'll be doing just that. Good night. Annie and I managed to get some sleep. In fact, the beds provided were quite comfortable with linen spreads and woolen pillows to rest our heads. Yet I was awoken by something during the early hours. My eyes flickered open, but there was nothing noticeable at first that could have caused it. I had no need to use the restroom, nor was I thirsty. I searched for what could have possibly roused me for a while, until I realized what had been there since I had re-emerged from sleep. A low harmony of unconnable tones staying out from somewhere. I felt in particular that it came from somewhere above us, but with how the frequencies merged and separated, interwove and then unwound, made it difficult to pinpoint. I had no worry, not at first, but the longer I listened, the more my mind became in tune with the soothing vibrations, the less I found my ability to think clearly. My train of thought was constantly derailed or switched lanes without my conscious choice. The thoughts, musings, and they became disordered and often felt as if they were not my own. It was when I began to make out voices for lack of a better term 
not those that you would hear spoken traveling as molecular vibrations in the air. They were better described as how one might hear their internal monologue. Only the words and ideas conveyed were foreign and unfamiliar. They were not mine. I can't recall anything distinct with how they overlapped, becoming one and then separated again in an endless chain of order struggling against entropy. I suddenly considered the notion that if I listened for too long, they would replace my own internal self entirely. That idea terrified me more than anything had before, and I was quick to dive back under the covers and fold the pillow tightly around my neck. The relentless cognitive noise settled and I found sleep again. I was disturbed once again this time with faint orange rays pouring in through the gaps between pillars. Unlike before, I immediately registered that a sound had woken me, and I shot up into a sitting position to see that Annie had done the same. Standing at the door and holding it open was Dom. I hope you have found rest this night. I brought some things to refresh the both of you that I feel you'll enjoy. He carried with him a large wooden tray, which held two steaming earthenware cups and an assortment of fresh food. I shot Annie an inquisitive glance and her returned expression agreed the sentiment. Excuse my French, but the food was freaking delicious. I don't think I've ever had a more fulfilling breakfast in my life. And even now I strive to be able to cook a morning meal that could even begin to rival it. The cups held some kind of herbal tea, which invigorated my body and cured any lingering tiredness from my interrupted sleep. We ate cheeses, bread, fruits, and vegetables the likes of which had never blessed my tongue with such wonders. My only complaint is that it was too good, and we were finished without taking the time to savor it. Dom seemed pleased with our reception, and waited patiently until we were ready to walk with him. The breakfast, fit for a lord, did not dispel the memories of what we had experienced yesterday, and I made an effort to bear that in mind. As we walked down a long straight hallway, I gave Annie the liberty of asking the questions this time, though she definitely bordered on interrogation at some points. I chose to remain silent, in part because of the residual horror of yesterday's events. The monks here, the ones who sit still for as long as you have described, how are they alive if their brains are gone? As I've said, they become receptacles in which the great wealth of thought may reside, in some capacity. Their minds are not here but there, as droplets of oil in an ocean, so that they are preserved as individuals. All the while, Annie was writing all this down on her notepad as I was. Having two versions to compare is infinitely better than one, in my eyes at least. She continued with pre-planned questions instead of delving further into the answers that she received. This well you talk about so often, what are you referring to? The huge skull you showed us yesterday. The great will of thought, my friend. Would you lend your ear to me, allowing me to enlighten you on why this place came to be? Of course. Annie replied instantly. Dom was silent for a time seeming to ponder how to start the tale that he was about to tell us. 
his head tilted back, eyes closed, before he returned to composure and spoke. Before us, there were nine beings who walked the earth as one of its innate properties. Of these, they shared but one mind, a vast sea in which their ideas, thoughts, and concepts came to fruition, and so would these manifest in the physical realm as they desired. However, despite the limitless potential for creation, they felt a hollow deep inside. What good were they as one perfect collective with nothing else to witness them? With much pondering, they conceived of free will, so they might create an independent being. But no one with access to their great mind in which they could think, ponder, and muse. As the source of the being's creations, the mind was something that they could not replicate and so their only choice was to share a portion of their own. Annie seemed entranced by this telling and had stopped writing. I kept on with it, though, as her backup. But what good is a single living being with no companions, no way to pass on their ideas and their memories? The beings considered this as well and begot living creatures able to propagate through time. The mechanisms would vary, but most were successful, and with each new generation came a variation in their being. Slight changes were morphed and shaped their forms over the ages, the wonder of evolution. At first, in the expansive oceans, they spawned primordial marine life. They observed, seldom interfering, watching as life began to very expand and change. For these beings, the wait for the first of the creatures to crawl onto the shore was but a fleeting moment and soon the creatures had evolved to be far more complex, acting off their own volition. This went on and here we are. Humanity, mankind, bred, had families expanded, and built their settlements. Again, for living things to think for themselves, the beings had to share their well of thought. So as the nine watched from out of view, seeing the good, the evil, and all in between, emerge from the minds of humanity. It began to take its toll on them. Their great mind became tainted and printed with the ideas, thoughts, and memories of all humankind, and they advanced further than could have ever been imagined. Aeons passed, and one by one, the nine beings began to perish in body. They traveled to remote and quiet places before their deaths, while only bones remain, they live on inside the well of thought. Though I transcribed his words, I doubted each and every one. How many men had proclaimed their dogmatic truths, all claiming to speak the words of a deity, taking themselves for prophets? Such is our single-mindedness. For the beings, inventing life, free to act on its own, was their greatest mistake. For while they hold imaginable power even now, they are not all-powerful in their sea of thoughts, while unfathomably vast is not infinite, and each day continues to be tainted, broken down purely through the mere action of thinking. So the fate of humanity has come to be that one day, they will have run dry the great well, and it will cease to exist, leaving all living things as beings of perception and nothing more. Egos will fade into nothingness, individuality forgotten. No more will be born new memories, nor thoughts, nor ideas, nor concepts. 
all that have existed throughout history will vanish, leaving humanity to roam aimlessly as mindless beings, acting purely out of instinct. We would hear, see, smell, and feel all, but comprehend or remember not. Admittedly, I was impressed with the tale. Yet again, mankind would condemn itself to eternal torment, as is proclaimed in so many faiths. Perhaps there is an inherent loathing for those of our kind as we walk among them. We sure love weaving narratives about apocalypse and Armageddon. Something was missing, though. What exactly had Dom and Yerhemi and the others devoted themselves for? What good was worship in the face of the inevitable? So, that I asked. What's the point of all this, then? Your faith and how you insist on it. Why, if we're all done anyway? Well, he replied, seeming to already know that I would ask this. It is a faith that is concrete no longer. Our founder encountered one of the nine in these hills, the skull of whom you've already witnessed, acting as a gateway of communication to the rest above in the well of thought. I understand that our practice may seem rather brutal, but rest assured that those who commune are not in pain or even discomfort. After the ritual rite at least, but that is a passing agony. Their minds are offered to the great well and they remain in communion for as long as needed. When the pure white flames spout from their empty skulls, that is when they're truly ready to enter unity, and so they're offered. There they remain alongside the nine, quietly assisting as angels of humanity. When the time comes, we'll wipe clean the slate, purge the sea of all thought, and start anew. The angels will guide humanity in rebuilding their society's ideas and connections, and I would hope that when the need arises once more in the distant future, our descendants will follow in our steps. I cannot say when this will happen, but the well runs dry and it may come sooner than we believe. Even holding my skepticism, I couldn't help but shudder at the notion to reduce every person to a mindless animal and then rebuild from the ground up. Every last memory of life of friends and family lost, language forgotten, if hypothetically this was all true. The plan Dom described did seem infinitely better than the alternative. I looked over to Annie, whose legs carried her along, but her mind was somewhere else. Despite the story being concluded, she still seemed ensnared in all that she had just heard. Annie, hey, broadsword calling, Annie boy. I said to her, lightly snapping my fingers. This word didn't pull in her back to the physical realm, and she shook her head and rubbed her eyes. I remembered only then about the spot-like thing that we had encountered before reaching this place. Hey, uh, about this well thing. When we're coming up here, there is this huge beam of light coming out from these clouds. We were trying to fend off a mountain lion, and this big spotlight darted onto where it stood, and it burned it to a crisp. Dom was hesitant to answer, but relented. Yes, well, would you not hold some resentment for all those who caused your downfall and bodily death? We are exempt, of course, but... There is hostility against all beings that gestate thoughts within them. The judgmental eye you witnessed indeed dissolved the very consciousness of this animal, a thing bound so tightly to the body that removal leads to annihilation. That is why we are blessed as the well allows us to persist, despite the separation of flesh and self. That was all that he was willing to share apparently, 
He led us on silently and before we realized, we were back at the skull room again. My memory isn't photographic, but I could tell that the monks had not budged a single millimeter from before. The memories flooded back and I slowed my pace cautiously. I have a proposition, Dom announced. I am willing to permit you a fleeting glance into the eyes of the receptors here. I do not imagine you'll be able to remain for long, but I must offer you this. As a courtesy, do you accept? I was wary, but to my surprise, Annie jumped at the opportunity. There was a glint of something in her eyes that I didn't recognize. Something that I couldn't help but think was not herself. I stood contemplating as she was led over and sat down between the others. Dom crouched and leaned in close, cupping her head and whispering something to her. At this, her back straightened, head upright, and she was still. He rose to his feet and then positioned himself so that he was directly behind her. His hand raised into a peculiar gesture, and after only a second he said, Good, once more then. A couple of his fingers curled up and then once more he said, Good. After this strange interaction, Dom turned to face me, swiveling gracefully on his heels. Well, will you join your friend? I didn't like this, but I had also come too far to pass off the chance to validate any of these wild claims. I was so stupid, to doubt it all despite what I had already witnessed. But this contradiction irked me, so I accepted. Dom took my hand and led me over beside Annie. I sat down, crossed my legs, and closed my eyes. I could feel him come down to my level and he whispered to me what I had previously not heard. Become one, the mind is fluid. Yours is yours, but also all and so all is yours. Set free the bounds of your thoughts. Peer into your true nature. As the last word was spoken, an electric feeling shot up my spine like nothing I had felt before. I could feel it course through every single path of neurons, every portion of my brain ignited with a shock of newly found energy. More intense it grew and I felt the edges of my mind dissolve, the way the rubber peels away after a water balloon has popped. My eyes opened. Actually, it was more like I no longer had eyelids to hold clothes. I found myself elevated higher up, confused. I turned and looked down only to see my own cross-legged body upon the polished floor. Dom already stood behind it, holding up his hand in yet another odd sign. For some reason, it occurred to me to count the fingers that he held aloft. One, two, three, four. Very good, he exclaimed, and the realization dawned on me what the purpose of this was. To make sure that I was indeed separated from my corporeal form. His fingers fluttered, so he now held up seven. I counted. Marvelous. It is time now for you to see our patron. Suddenly, it was as if I was rocketed upwards, far into the heavens above. All I saw was white at first, until the feeling of G's pulling on myself ceased and my vision cleared. In front of me was a vast plain, rippling like an ocean surface. Unlike the previous whiteness, it was mottled and sullied with sickening hues of green, purple, and brown, like endless patches of bruise and rot, eating away at the reality where I stood. Where I stood, it would be inaccurate to say where, because all at once, 
I saw it from an infinity of angles and positions, as if I were peering inwards into my own consciousness. Memories from places unknown filtered through me, and I remembered lives that I had not lived, names that were not mine and parents and children I had never known. It occurred to me that I wasn't really sure on which of them were mine anymore, unable to distinguish between my own experiences and those of people who died long before my birth. Even so, all these memories were fleeting. No one stayed for more than a moment before being replaced by another. It was Shakespeare writing Macbeth. A bullet traversed my brain as Abraham Lincoln. I hunted a mammoth with cruelly made spears. I was. I felt a scream, but with no body I heard nothing. A tingling sensation overcame me in that moment, one of irretrievable loss that burned at the fringe of my psyche, stirring all that I was in a cognitive melting pot. Again, the sudden acceleration hit me, and before I knew it, my eyes were opened and I finally heard my own screams. So bright, I felt blinded, like a flashbang had gone off in my face. A harsh stench hit me then, something burning. The seething heat that engulfed my face demanded my attention and I could see fragments of the room through the hazy glare. I wasn't blinded. Bright pale flames were rocketing out of my eyeballs, singeing off eyelashes and the tuft of hair that hung over my forehead. I smacked at the fire wildly with panicked whimpers. All I could manage at the time with the equally intense blaze spewing from my mouth. My face felt like it would melt away if this went on. Dom was at my side, and through some esoteric practice, the flames dissipated. I sat in wide-eyed terror for a long time before coming back to myself. The smell of burnt hair hung around us and I could already feel the stinging pain over my face, lips and eyelids raw. As feeling returned, I remembered Annie. I whipped around to my right, fearing the worst, but saw her with the most serene look on her face, not an ember to be seen. How, how could she be peaceful in that place? I felt the question escape my lips without realizing that I had spoken. Oh yes, she seems to be well attuned, doesn't she? It's rare to see such an affinity at first communion. Exceptional, Dom exclaimed. Yeah, it does seem that way. I'm sorry for your experience, friend. I can't ask any more of you. She didn't return for a few minutes. Supposedly, I was only there for about ten seconds, but in that place, in that place that span felt like countless lifetimes condensed into a single moment, I couldn't fathom it and I didn't want to, to be honest. We must have spoken for a long time as we walked before her as the sun had already started its descent. We were led back to our guest room, all the while Annie spouting revelations and realizations that meant nothing to me. In my eyes, she was speaking complete nonsense, things so far-fetched that I had trouble understanding what she even meant. From what I could tell, it was like she had been somewhere else entirely in comparison to what I had seen. The abrupt change disturbed me, she seemed almost a different person. But God, I'm so tired now. My eyes are begging to close as I write this, despite the swollen blisters over my face that burn more with every passing minute. Hopefully I can sleep uninterrupted tonight.
We'll leave tomorrow, I'm sure of it. I can't imagine anything else Dom could possibly have to show us. I already know that I won't be returning as the one who came here, but I refuse to lose any more. I'm worried for Annie more than myself. I don't like how she was acting. Her words sounded from someplace else. I'm standing out in my garden at home. It's sunny, but the clouds start to roll in and quickly the weather becomes overcast. Something's wrong. Long strands start falling from the sky above, reaching down towards me. I try to move, I try to run, try to do anything at all, but I can't move. They grab me and hoist me up. I'm pulled upwards, further and further into the newly born blanket of gloomy clouds. Above me, the upside-down surface of a lake approaches at a great speed, before I am plunged into it and pulled through. I hang in a gray abyss held by unseen forces. It's so cold. Things move around me in the murk, but I can't make out their shapes. They approach curiously and grow bolder. They reach out, nipping my body. More and more start to attack, each time stealing away a tiny part of my body. The attack increases. Larger and larger parts of me are torn away and lost to the haze around me. Yet even after the last fragment of my body is taken away, I remain. I see and hear everything as a being of perception alone. But I cannot look around. Non-existent limbs refuse to cooperate. No matter my yearning to scream, no sound is produced from a mouth that is no longer there. It is torment and infinity. Sorry, I had to write all that down first thing. Wouldn't want to forget such an astounding dream. Well, nightmare moreover. As for the rest of this, I had a very hard time putting any of it to paper. I seem to have recovered now, but forgive me if there are things that I missed out. Following that terrible dream, I woke up in a frenzied confusion. I felt terrible, foggy. Where was I? What was the time and date? Who was I? Rubbing my head, legs hanging off the edge of the mattress, I looked around to see one other empty bed. Was I here by myself or was there somebody else here? Someone else? Arthur, no Angela, Angie, Annie, yeah, where was Annie? Through the haze, I somehow wooed my brain into recalling who I had come to this forsaken place with. I tried to stand up from the bed, but my legs buckled and I toppled onto hands and knees. The cool stone floor definitely gave me strength, dispelling some of the abhorrent mist that clouded in my head. Pushing myself back up with an effort that felt like the last rep of a push-up set, I found myself on my feet once more, albeit with wobbly knees. I reached a hand out to the wall to steady myself, and after gaining some composure, I was able to start walking. The door to this room hung wide open, but there was no one outside. God, Annie, where have they taken you? What are they doing to you? I stumbled and tripped down a seemingly endless hallway, and like smoke or vapor, a man suddenly appeared in front of me. I bumped into him, but he caught me in his arms and hoisted me back up, both hands on my shoulders. My friend, are you okay? What are you doing? He said with a concerned tone. Who was this guy? 
He had the weirdest haircut like ripples on the surface of a pond, and he wore the most dazzling robes. Any shadow that fell upon them was washed away in place of their vibrant colors. I tried to speak, but my native language had not yet come back in its entirety. I, uh, wh where am is Annie? The men shot me a quizzical look and then took my hand, turning around and leading me somewhere. I think it's time you leave for your own well-being. You'll recover soon. I will prepare a brew that should nurse you back into being. I don't remember the journey, but I found myself sitting on a bench with a steaming cup in my hand. It was hot, really hot, and I dropped it reflexively. The man was still with me, and without a word, he filled another cup and placed it down next to me, clearing up the one that had just shattered on the ground. This time, I waited to let the drink cool and then drank half in one gulp. The warm sensation traveling into my stomach was pleasant, and the effects of its contents were made apparent as clarity found me again and memories came flooding back. I groaned, took a few deep inhales, and then got up and asked, Can I, can we please leave now, Dom? Absolutely. I should have sent you on your way yesterday, regrettably. But alas, here we are. Though before that, would you like to say your farewells? Yeah, yeah, of course. Thank you for the hospitality, I... Oh, no, 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 he interjected. I meant to your friend. A pang of adrenaline cut through me as I heard that. Why would I be saying farewell to Annie? Unless... What have you done? Where is Annie? I want to get her and leave. Where is she? Wordlessly, Dom beckons me to follow. With no other choice, I complied and after a short walk, we arrived at the skull room, complete with its burning incense, polished floor, monks. Annie... Annie, no God, please. I, I was too late. I didn't recognize her at first, but I had recognized that shade of brunette anywhere. Tufts peeking out from underneath a funnel-shaped hat. Annie, how could you do this? I screamed, thrashing out of Dom's grip. Please stop this, I implore you. It was of her own choice to join us. Nothing was forced upon her. I don't believe you. How, how could you have possibly done this? My weakened legs carried me towards her, but again, that whistle sounded and I was quickly restrained by a pair of brainless monks. I pulled, shouted, and fought to escape, but it was no use. I think that is more than enough. The well speaks. The presence of this man is welcome no more. Your Hemi, please escort him out with haste. The other man appeared from nowhere from somewhere behind me and took my arm in a grip of steel. It was an unnatural strength from something else within him. Something that shouldn't be there. No, no, stop. Let me take her, please. The whole time my head was turned backward, screaming out for Annie, even though I knew there was no possible scenario where she could return with me. My throat was shredded by the time that we arrived at back at the entrance. There, your Hemi halted his march and turned to me with a grim expression. You must leave this place quickly. The great well covets you now. It has allowed you to peer inside it, but I can sense its revulsion to your gaze. Please run and do not linger for one minute longer. 
In those final moments, I finally saw the pink scar tissue encircling his head. Before I had the time to properly understand this, he pushed me forward, jump-starting my muscles into action. I tumbled down the slope in dust and brittle leaves. From above, sounded a soul-twisting vibration, and I dared not look. My descent was broken, and I rolled across the ledge, the path that I had taken with Annie to reach this terrible place. All my limbs were scratched and scraped, but through a divine miracle, nothing was broken or sprained. My shoes scraped against the ground, gaining traction, and I ran with all the energy that I had left. As I fled, the sun's light began to dim, and a dark front slid over the ground, stretching far away from me. Nothing could distract me now, booking it at full speed down the time-worn trail. Sounds like thunder erupted from far above, an awful crackling resonance that penetrated flesh and bone. Lungs screamed and muscles burned, but none of that mattered. Even if I never walked again, I would absolutely choose that over being taken by the incomprehensible madness, the same one whose eyes were on me. Without warning, my foot caught on something and I rolled head over heels, gashing my cheek on a sharp stone in the process. I forced through the dizziness and turned to sit upright. A mistake. Oh, what a mistake. In doing so, I had unwillingly turned around to face back from where I came. I had tripped over some strange and black object. And it hit me then. What had hindered my escape? It was the same blackened and seared corpse of the mountain lion from days before. No more white flames this time, but I don't know why I looked up. Immediately, I regretted this decision, as I saw those dark gray coils tightened around each other in a way that made my head ache. They condensed, twisted, and grew impossibly, until the colossal blanket smothered at the midday sky. It dwarfed the formation that we had seen before, tenfold larger in size and span. I didn't want to acknowledge it, but the cerebral shape of the formation was obvious now. And then they parted like Moses parting the Red Sea. The great cloud separated down the middle. What I thought to be sunlight was re-emerging, clawing its way out of the dark mass, but it wasn't sunlight. It wasn't anything close. The sky between the clouds cracked and splintered and it ruptured. A vast split cleaved apart the heavens, widening into a gaping fissure, leading to somewhere else entirely. It was so bright, God, it felt like staring into a military flashlight. I had to shield my eyes from certain damage. The colorless void stirred. Out of the fractured sky, uncountable strands fell out like dangling ropes. Only they were huge, unfathomably so. They danced about the orange peaks like pale snakes, but they weren't. They were that same pure blinding flame that had plagued this journey and every single one slithered through the air towards me, every last one. They were distant still, but even then I could feel the radiating hunger that wanted to eat all that I was, everything that I had ever known. I let out a shriek which was retorted by a deafening wail, a sound that was the embodiment of the collective despair of tortured minds. I hated it so much. Nothing since has come close to instilling the raw terror that I had in that moment. I scrambled to my feet and turned, almost falling again as my feet slipped on the ground. 
At that time, I could have beaten a champion sprinter doped by pure adrenaline. I fear that I had not been soon enough. As I felt a weight, something of substance, crawling out from my eyes and ears, caught in the gravity of my pursuer. The skin on my face bubbled, small patches sloughing away with my air resistance. To this day, I have never felt such a scathing heat, as if the flames of Lucifer himself were reaching out to me, lapping at my soul. Dreading the loss of anything else, my mind went blank as all power was directed to my legs. My feet were in agony, slapping down on rocks and dust over and over, and my chest felt tight. I would still rather die from a heart attack than be caught. I felt my consciousness slipping, blotches covering my vision like I had stared at the sun for too long. I didn't slow one bit though. It was like my body had entered full autopilot. As the red and purple spots spread over my sight, I heard words spoken to me. Well, not spoke, more like something had hijacked my internal monologue in order to convey itself. Not return, not yet, for thyself is sweet and succulent to be savored. Long has it been. That's all I could remember in any meaningful way. Invasive thoughts of oblivion swam about my head and at this point I was practically blind. I don't remember much of the next part. There were several blinks in perception and each time I caught glimpses, vague outlines of new surroundings. The blinks became less frequent and I came back to full lucidity to find myself teetering on the edge of a steep hill. I had learned not to look and see what was beyond by now so I shot down the slope, almost skating with my trainers as skis. An intense flash of heat hit my eyes and I feared for the worst, but it went as quickly as it had come. Clenching my eyelids a couple of times to clear my vision, I could see that the light had been reflected off of a vehicle's hood, a gray Range Rover, Annie's Range Rover. It didn't even register to me at first that it was likely I didn't have the keys. In fact, I wasn't even aware of the pack slung over my back until I slowed to a stop and felt its weight. I tore it off, unzipping to reveal the contents. No tents, of course, but I still had my notepad and laptop, mostly undamaged by some miracle. A few wires, empty wrappers, but no key. My heart dropped, but I persisted and shook the bag up and down. There was definitely something rattling in there, and I remembered the pouch on the inside of the bag. The lip was hidden at first, but I reached in and grabbed a hold of something cold and hard. I'm not saying that I would live through all that again to experience the same feeling. But the unadulterated, euphoric relief that rushed over me was incomparable. I did indeed have the keys to the rover. Not skipping a beat, I fumbled to unlock the driver's side door and clambered inside. The first, a comfortable seat in hours. I sat there for a good ten minutes before I even considered starting her up, letting my pulverized joints recover. It would be a real shame to die in a car accident after only just escaping with my life and sanity. I won't bore you detailing the drive, but I felt a deep sense of regret the whole way home. Surely I could have done something to save Annie. I mean, she didn't have any brain to speak of now, but I feel that killing her would have been a mercy. It kills me to know that she's out there somewhere in the clutches of that thing. 
The shock started its onset barely five minutes from home. The burning pain radiating across my face was subdued. I just about managed to get back and park safely. I exited the car and opened my front door, stepping inside with total vacancy. I made it a few steps into the living room before ultimately. My legs gave out and I collapsed from exhaustion. I woke up later seeing that it had already started to grow dark outside. For a blissful moment, I was spared the memories of all that had happened. It was short-lived though as it all came rushing back. My eyes widened and I jumped up off the floor. I called 911 and requested an officer. Who could have guessed to see Davis standing on my porch after opening the door to urgent sounding knocks? I explained everything. Well, not everything in truth. I wasn't even sure if I could understand half of what I had witnessed. And I didn't want to come off as crazy while giving a formal report, even if it was with Davis. I think he could tell that I needed the rest and told me he'd come back tomorrow to discuss further. A missing persons report was filed immediately since we had already been out on the trail for a few days, and a recovery team was sent out to these Salt Point trails. The case was kept confidential so I don't really know much beyond that. I even felt a pang of guilt having them sent out to that place, and that they might also never come back. What I do know is they never found Danny. Not that it surprised me. Even if they did, she may as well have been dead, and likely would be if she ever left that place. I never want to go back there, ever. The fear of losing your entire self, all that composes you, is something that I've never come to terms with. It's the feeling of unimaginable loss, becoming irretrievable in the hands of something old, something hungry. Still, I've tried to look into the place over and over again. There's nothing on satellite images, but the strangest thing is that no matter how I try to remember, to remind myself of where it was or how exactly to get there, I never learn anything. It's like the knowledge is permanently lost, like even if I were to dedicate every day for the rest of my life to discovering it, I would turn up empty-handed. Empty-headed, rather. That in itself terrifies me to no end. The fact that something so trivial as a location is now forbidden, my mind repelling any attempts to relearn the whereabouts. I know where the Salt Point trails are, where the car was parked, but beyond that I cannot fathom. I would write for Annie here the whole, if you're out there thing, but I know in my heart that she will find no rest, only eternal dissolution, the total loss of everything unique and dear to her. One could see it as a purgatory of sorts, to be an undying being of unbiased perception, knowing and remembering all from everywhere, but without the ability to solidify any of those thoughts or memories. I don't think I'm going to try to sell this story after all. It would be an insult to my partner in crime, but even disregarding that, it would just read as a jumbled mess of nonsensical events likely the deranged hallucinations of a sun-stricken man. So, I think I'll just keep these posts up on here. This is a warning. There's something deep in the hills of Utah and it is not benevolent. It is unnatural. A deceiver between the peaks. This is not just a piece of creative writing. If you were to encounter whatever is out there, you would wish that you had never been born. Endless non-existence is child's play in the face of it. 
I don't think anything that I was told there was true. Well, maybe, but a heavily warped truth. One that even the monks themselves could not see through. I fear for them all that beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have been deceived. What else can I say? If you ever find yourself deep in the hiking trails of Utah, or anywhere else and you see alien clouds whirling in the sky, turn around, never look back, and do your best to forget. There's nothing there worth investigating. It's not worth it. Before we get into our next story, I just wanted to take a minute to talk about our sponsor, CB Distillery. Now, I enjoy exercising quite a bit, and whether it be going for a run or playing basketball at my local park, I do enjoy it, but the soreness and pain that comes afterwards isn't always the best. I had been searching for a remedy for a while when I stumbled upon a CBD, and it's definitely helped with the after-workout pain. CB Distillery has been my go-to ever since for CBD products because they only use 100% clean ingredients. That means no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. And with over 2 million satisfied customers, you know that they're reliable. If you're frustrated with a health concern that's not getting better, try CBD from the source that I trust, cbdistillery.com. Let me get you on the right path with my 20% discount. Just visit cbdistillery.com and enter my code MrCreeves for your discount. No prescription required. That's cbdistillery.com. Promo code MrCreeves for 20% off. That's cbdistillery.com. Tales from a Town That Doesn't Exist Anymore Written by Young Seti I glanced down at the clock on my dashboard. 10.02, it read, in glowing green numbers amidst the darkness. Almost 30 minutes on the dot since we had entered the town. It was a nondescript little place. Short, squat, gray and brown buildings with signs introducing local businesses, lining the streets in the areas where small but homey residential houses bunched close together amidst well-kept lawns were not. Nothing too picturesque, but a standard Rust Belt town that, although it had clearly seen better days, had kept on chugging until it was a passable, if not at times, a pleasant place to live. I knew the type well. My own hometown in central Illinois had been much the same. Beyond that, I was familiar with this very town, having passed through it on my way to the campsite with my friends, Phil and Clay and I had spent the weekend at. It reminded me of days past, the sort of place frozen in time. It was that familiarity, perhaps, limited though it was that made the place stand out to me on the way to our campsite. The town marked the four-hour point of our drive, and had been made as something of a landmark, as we had determined to stop there for gas and some snacks on the way back. Yet as we pulled off of the empty highway, the first thing that had begun to grip me was the silence. From the moment that we had entered the town, driving down what seemed to be the main road through the place, 
We had been greeted by nothing more than these staggering silence and a smell that seemed to linger faintly. There are few things that can truly, deeply unnerve a person. One of those things is true and utter silence. I'm not talking about the silence of a quiet home, with neighbors' cars and distant yapping dogs audible from beyond your walls. No, true silence. Especially in a place where there ought to be the opposite. That was what we experienced rolling back through the town that had previously been as busy as any other along the highway. With the exception of my vehicle and that which carried my friends behind me, there was nothing. No distant roar of traffic on surrounding streets. The odd squeal of a brake, a honk of a horn, and a call of a pedestrian. It was more than just a lack of noise, however. There were no birds or joggers or people walking their dogs. No cars in the road. I felt an uneasy twinge in my gut, like something plucking at a loose fabric, and I found myself turning to my passenger seat to speak to my wife, an active habit before finding it empty. Of course, I recalled the feeling of reacquainting myself with reality, a bitter one. She's not here. That's the whole reason you're on this trip. The camping trip had been Phil's idea of following my divorce as a way to get me out of the funk that they had insisted I had entered, and he and Clay had battered me with it until I reluctantly gave in. We had spent a week at campground hopping around the state and were making our way back towards our homes in the exurbs of Chicago. We had passed through the town on our way to one of these state parks much farther south, and it had stood out to me. It had been a relatively quiet place then, but still with plenty of folks out and about. It seemed like the kind of town that still had a local hardware store not called Ace or Home Depot, and folks had Sunday breakfast at the local diner. And on our first pass-through, I felt myself oddly drawn to it in a sort of nostalgic way that made me think of better bygone days. I resolved that it would be one of our pit stops on the way back upstate. The plan had been to fill up at the gas station, maybe stop for breakfast at a little local watering hole before continuing on our journey and recharging our batteries in this Rockwell painting of a town. Part of me, the part seeking any logical explanation until the point of illogic, thought perhaps it was all an effect of the weather, both the impossibly sudden emptiness of the place and the sort of surreal, almost dreamlike disquiet that seemed to hang in the air everywhere. It had been staggeringly sunny on our initial pass-through, a rare sort of day in Illinois as the summer allowed an early peak through the spring. Whereas now, it was overcast. Angry gray clouds hung overhead, growing blacker and more foreboding by the minute, with them a feeling of static in the air, and a breeze carried through the empty streets, lone and errant and on it a chill of winter. A larger part knew how ridiculous that thought was. I had seen some bad weather in my day, even a few historic blizzards, and yet I had never seen an entire town utterly empty. 
and yet the last 10 minutes had been spent driving slowly along the main road. My car in the lead as we retraced our previous steps through what seemed to be the main plaza of the quiet town. A sign painted on a dull green background, tucked with a floral display read, Welcome to beautiful Criers Creek, Illinois. Population, 4,673. As far as I looked, I saw neither hide nor hair of a single one of those almost 5,000 people. Lights remained shining through storefronts with no one to man them. The stoplights turned red, then green, then yellow all the same. Though the road was deserted but for our two vehicles. Cars remained in parking spots lining the streets, somehow feeling like old and ancient fossils. Their presence made ominous in the terrible silence. A choice few rumbled feeling much like a pack of grumbling beasts in waiting as their engines ran idly. They made my gut tighten like a fist, a pool of anxiety forming of a steady drip at the back of my mind. The sudden chime of my phone shattered the relative silence, making me jump in my seat. For the first time since entering the town, for the first time in a while, I was glad to be riding alone and no one could see my jumpiness. Phil, the screen read, urging me to answer or deny the call. I did the former. Hey, I answered. I still squinted as I peered out the window. I still expected or hoped might be a better word for it. To see someone. To catch some glimpse of motion passing behind a window. Or catch a distant eye watching from a window as if this were all some trick the whole town was in on. Hey. Phil's voice was unusual. Shakier with a tinge of emotion not characteristic of him. I was reluctant to call it fear, but... Listen, either Clay and I are losing our minds. We rounded a corner, onto a street leading to a roundabout centered around what was clearly the town park. A statue of some long-dead figure sat atop a horse, with a sword drawn and face stern was the only facsimile of life visible. Or there's literally nobody in this town but us. I felt the blood in my veins go cold at hearing the uneasy realization spoken aloud. As though the strange reality was made concrete in doing so. Yeah, I spoke reluctantly. It, uh, it looks like it. Guys, I'm not gonna lie, bro. Clay's voice came over the line. And even through the phone, I could hear the palpable disquiet heavy in his tone. I'm getting an awful feeling about this. An icy chill rippled through me at that. He wasn't wrong, of course. Since we had entered the city limits, the air had felt almost charged with an uneasy, surreal sort of energy. It was the sort of feeling that you get in a place that had just experienced a great tragedy or upheaval. If you've ever walked through the remains of a house burnt in a fire or seen a town rendered unrecognizable by a heavy storm, you know the feeling. As though every inch was a warning of how vulnerable we all truly are. A stark reminder of our own fleeting nature. And yet as we moved through those streets, taken by a silence that could find no logical explanation for 
with every bit of daunting unease that I felt, there seemed a greater nagging sort of curiosity. Something about it all bothered me, the suddenness of it. Places don't just up and desert like that. People don't all just leave the homes and jobs in town they've known and loved. No, there felt like there was something more to it, and for some reason I felt compelled to know what. I nearly leapt from my skin as the radio kicked to life, filling my car with the croon of a sudden unfamiliar voice. I squinted hard at the radio which had ceased working from the moment that I had entered town, as though it might somehow explain the sudden interruption, which was over just as soon as it had started. On the other end, I could hear a similar burst of sound, followed by Phil's cursing in surprise. This town is a dead zone for signals. Radio's on the crapper. My data's cutting in and out. Where are we going anyway, man? There was a diner that I saw when we passed through the first time. Cute little spot. Reminded me of where Jenna and I first. I swallowed the sudden knot in my throat, surprised by the emotion that I felt at the memory. It reminded me of a spot that I used to eat at in college. There was silence from the other end and I could all but see the looks passed between them at the mention of my ex-wife. A mixture of concern and mild irritation. Well, it doesn't look like there will be much in the way of service. Clay chimed in. Of course I knew he was correct and yet in the moment, the idea of turning back somehow filled me with an unusual sort of apprehension. It was the feeling one has when forgetting some important meeting or gathering. Aware only that it slipped their mind, but not of what or how. Uh, probably, but I would still like to try to check it out. Come on, boys, I offered, trying my best to lighten the mood. Where's your sense of adventure? After a moment of silence, Clay responded. Okay, lead the way. See you then. And so I did. Navigating the stark emptiness of the streets with them in tow, only the faint whistle of the wind moving between the buildings and the creak of wavering streetlights, none of which seemed to follow any discernible sort of pattern, only working in seemingly random intervals. Every so often the radio would spark to life, only to sputter off just as quickly. I tried to keep my eyes on the road. There was something about the lifelessness of the buildings that seemed to play to one's imagination. If I let my eyes linger too long, I could swear that there were figures, barely more than a shadow and only there for a moment, darting behind curtains and walls. After a few minutes we arrived, pulling into a parking lot with a few dozen cars scattered throughout, as if from some morning breakfast rush that we couldn't see. After a moment to muster my confidence, I stepped from the car, making my way across to the door. There was only the sound of my feet sliding across the pavement and the rumble of the car behind me. A smell filled the air, like that of an old television set. Ozone. The word emerged like a thought whispered from somewhere. Behind me, Phil and Clay pulled into the lot quickly, stepping from the car and following behind me, muttering to themselves. As I arrived at the door, 
I felt confusion give way to apprehension, and a cold sweat began to beat above my brow. The doorway had been blocked, doors and chairs all piled in front in some makeshift excuse for a barricade. The three of us paused for a moment as Clay and Phil caught up, a glance passing between all of us that seemed to carry a different meaning in every eye, though all expressed an obvious disquiet. I knocked on the door, peering in through the dust-covered window for any sign of who might have piled all of the furniture, but found only an empty diner, half-eaten meals, cell phones, and a lone laptop all set around, the signs of life in motion yet with none of their owners to be found. I tried to stifle the chill I felt as the skeletal fingers of dread seemed to run along my spine gently. Help me push this. I implored, grunting as I positioned my shoulder against the door and began to push with great exertion. The two looked at each other for a moment before Phil gave a shrug, his eyes meeting Clay's in a look that seemed to say, we might as well, before adding his effort to my own. The door gave a hiss as we managed to pry it open almost half a foot, sending the chairs piled on the other side clattering to the ground in a cacophony that made my heart lurch, such a sudden change from the utter silence. I coughed, once then twice as my throat stung for a moment, that odd ozone smell seeming to grow stronger on the breeze. You think this is a good idea? Clay asked, still standing behind us. His arms were crossed and there was a look on his face that I didn't like. It made me feel analyzed. Like I was back in those marriage counseling sessions that had done nothing, being mentally picked apart by my wife and therapist, who had seemed both only existed to point out my every flaw. I bit back a retort, tasting the venom at the back of my throat, and swallowing hard despite the irritation, his attitude rising like floodwaters. I think there's a ton of people that just up and disappeared. I think that's something I can't just drive away from. I raised an eyebrow. You're a biology professor for the love of God. Shouldn't you have like some sort of scientific curiosity or something? Clay narrowed his eyes in a look of mild irritation, pursing his lips for a moment before muttering a few expletives and adding his strength to ours. The door and the tables piled on the other end groaned in protest as we pushed it open as far as it would go. One by one, we slipped through the opening and into the diner. The fluorescent lights hummed and crackled, seeming to grow brighter as we entered, bathing the sky-blue wallpaper and vomit-green tile on the floor in a hospital-esque glow. It somehow made the situation feel all the more surreal and unwelcoming, pairing with the silence to turn what otherwise seemed your common small-town diner into an utterly unfamiliar and alien place. Outside, the wind seemed to pick up on the surreality that seemed to fill the air and made the windows groan in protest against it. And Clay made his way towards the counter, ringing the lone bell several times. Enough, man, Christ, Phil chided. There's nobody here. Clay shrugged before climbing onto the counter. What are you doing? I demanded. As Clay slid over the counter, still bearing half-finished coffees and meals, and on to the other side. 
Making a coffee, he grunted, grabbing an untouched sausage from one of the plates and taking a bite. I felt the need to argue, but after a moment, I could think of no reason why. The place was abandoned. It wasn't like anyone was coming. And yet I couldn't help but feel the need to be silent, as though any overwhelming noise might attract the attention of. Well, that didn't feel quite as clear. Coffee boys? Anyone? Clay asked, waving his cup at us and spilling a bit on the linoleum. Phil nodded and Clay made his way back to the machine. I muttered a, no thanks, continuing around the diner. A laptop a few tables away had caught my attention. It was open, the screen still glowing, though it was dim. I made my way closer, eyeing it suspiciously. Beside it sat a set of keys and a wallet. I couldn't help but feel a chill at the sight. All things that nobody would leave behind unless left without a choice. We shouldn't be here. The thought forced itself through my head, and I tried to dismiss it, curiosity still burning. And still, I found myself sliding into the booth in front of the laptop, celebrating silently that it was still open. On the screen, I immediately recognized the Facebook Messenger, having had to answer plenty of, hey, we're here if you need anything messages, from folks that I hadn't heard from in years after my divorce. I felt a twinge of unease as I realized I was reading someone's messages. This was certainly already an invasion of privacy to be sure, and now it felt even more so. Still, I continued, pushed down by an almost feverish need to understand what was happening. As I began to read, I felt icicles forming along the walls of my veins, my blood turning to icy slush, my insides to liquid. The account belonged to a Dan Almond, a slightly older gentleman in his mid-fifties, and the messages were between him and another man, Kevin, who was clearly his son. Earlier ones made it clear the kid was away at college. I love you, kiddo. Your mom loves you, too. We all love you so much, and I'm so proud of you. The first message sent that day read, There's something going on here in town. I can't explain it. It don't seem anyone can. But I don't think your mama and I are going to be there for graduation, bud. I'm sorry. Just don't come home. Don't come back to Criers Creek. Ain't nothing good here for you anymore. Dad, are you okay? What's going on? I've been getting messages and seeing things on Snapchat all day about something flying over the town. Is mom okay? She's with me, kiddo. We're together. I can't tell you what's going on. I don't even know myself. I just know that we can't go outside. People are disappearing. Pulled up straight into the sky like a rapture but I don't think this has nothing to do with God. I saw Mr. O'Reilly yanked straight off the ground, heard him scream until it stopped all of a sudden. His son's responses came soon after, frantic and questioning, followed by a call that wasn't answered. Dad, pick up. Who's Mr. O'Reilly? Dad, please pick up the phone. I'm sorry, you got no idea how much I'd like to hear your voice right now, but we have to be quiet. I'm at the Larry's with your mom. The folks here have got the doors all barricaded up. Can't help but think it won't do much good though. 
I felt a cold creeping up along my spine, a cold awful dread sewing itself deep into the fields of my mind. I can hear it now over us. Dang thing sounds like a truck. I love you, kiddo. Never forget it. It was the final message sent from Dan. There were a few more from his son, desperate and pleading for a response, followed by a string of calls that went unanswered and then, nothing. I took a breath, feeling an uneasy tremor developing. The sounds of clinking plates and glasses as Clay and Phil cooked themselves breakfast seemed to fade to the background, as I found myself reading the conversation again and again. Any doubts that I had had as to whether or not something awful had happened here faded rapidly. I still can't be certain what drove me to make the call. Perhaps it was the unease and the hope that somehow the young man would be able to offer some rational explanation, perhaps even explaining how his father had been mistaken and how the town had been evacuated due to a gas leak or some mundane reason. It may not bode well for us, but the longer that I sat there, the less I felt anything would. And at least that response might quell the rising dread that I was feeling. It was like being a child again. A fear of something nebulous and formless yet dreadfully present all the time. The chime of the call ringing filled the diner, drawing both other sets of eyes toward me, both asking the same silent questions. After a moment, there was finally an answer. Hello? The voice belonged to a man who couldn't have been older than 20-something. Hi, is this Kevin? There was a pause. Yes, who is this? I felt a twinge of unease at the tone of his response, questioning, but not nearly as worried as I'd expect someone to sound receiving a call from a stranger on their apparently missing father's Facebook. I, uh, I'm a friend of Dan's, I lied, hoping that it didn't sound quite as obvious as it felt. There was another silence, longer than before, and in it I could swear the tension was palpable. It was as if I could hear the gears turning in his head. I don't know any Dan's. Sorry, man, you got the wrong guy. My heart struck hard against the inside of my chest as I tried to swallow the unyielding knot of dread that had formed in my throat somewhere along the way. Phil's questioning look grew worried, surely seeing the fear on my face. Clay's irritated and uneasy as he mouthed a, what? In my direction, clearly wanting to be caught up. Feeling the creep of anxiety as it began to brim over, and unsure of what else to say, I elected for the uneasy truth. Your, your father, your father Dan. I found his laptop in a diner in a town called Criers Creek. I think something may have happened to him. Listen, man, I told you you've got the wrong guy. I, I never knew either of my parents. I got no memory of him. There was some palpable emotion at the end of his words that I could tell he was trying to restrain and yet it felt as though he was telling the truth. Or at least the truth as he believed it, despite the evidence the previous messages laid out. It made my skin crawl and stomach tighten like a fist, an inhuman dread gripping me firmly in its clutches. The wind outside grew heavy and the windows all seemed to yawn and groan in simultaneous protest, the sounds forming a frightful symphony. 
I peered outside one of the windows that stretched along the walls on either side, and could see nothing in the empty streets and even less in the skies above. The clouds all seemed to threaten of an approaching storm, the sort that transformed streets into rivers and fields into swamp, a force capable of changing the face of the earth beneath it. And yet, not a raindrop was to be seen, just clouds, clouds behind which, if I looked for too long, I thought I could see shapes moving within, large and darker even than the surrounding gray, but gone as soon as I thought they had appeared. I searched for something, anything to say that would lead to a rational answer. It had always been in my nature, let my ex-wife tell it, a need to be right that made confusion feel all but unacceptable. I've never seen how it could be a negative, the pursuit of knowledge. Now I wonder if perhaps I simply refuse to. He doesn't remember his father. The thought rang like a question to which I could find no answer. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you not to contact me again, please. Good luck with whatever. Wait, please, I... The laptop chimed with a cheer that I didn't feel as the call had ended. I tried again, but there was no answer. And before I could go for a third, the account had been blocked. What was that all about? Clay asked, his unease apparent, eyes darting between myself and Phil who didn't look any better himself. I could think of nothing else to do but tell them the truth. When I was through, there was silence for a moment that seemed to linger for hours between the three of us. We need to go, Phil finally chimed. If any of that is true, then we need to get out of this place now. Clay nodded, sliding his plate away and making his way over the counter and towards the door. To my own surprise, I felt a bloom of apprehension feeling an argument building inside of me. They were right, obviously. Something was going on that I could make no sense of, and yet, still I wanted to understand. People don't just disappear. None of this was possible. And for reasons that still escaped me, I felt driven to prove it. Yet the look on their faces, it made me uneasy. It was the face you would expect from the crew of a ship far too long at sea to the captain who had denied them a return home. The entire trip had been for me, and though I may not have called for it, it was certainly my decision to visit this town, and my choices that had kept us there. Something told me that disagreement might not be an option at this point. I stood and slid from the booth, casting one last glance at the laptop before nodding my agreement. Clay gave a brief nod, and had it turned to open the door when, boom, there was a sound like a train derailing, or a bomb going off or both, somewhere close by, that sent all three of us scattering along the ground. The windows shook and the air itself seemed to vibrate with a sound like nothing that I had ever heard, a strange all-present sort of hum that seemed to come from everywhere. My eyes darted wildly about the room in my utter panic, searching for the cause, and I could swear that I caught a glimpse of something outside. It was quick and massive, moving about the sky as if unaffected by gravity. But as that awful hum grew, I shut my eyes tight, trying to wool away the ache in my skull. That smell from earlier, like burning ozone, 
grew thick until everybody was coughing uncontrollably. My head spun and my vision shook. Another explosive sound rocked the air, shattering several of the windows. As quickly as it began, everything ended, the world going eerily still. I don't know how long it was before any of us felt comfortable moving, but Clay was the first, shooting to his feet and hissing a string of expletives. His arms ran with scarlet ribbons of red trailing between his fingers as he picked out the glass that had caught him. He had been nearest to the door which had burst with the first few windows and caught the worst of it, though all of our heads rang and stomachs turned with nausea. What, what was that? Phil managed. His eyes were wide, with a look that I had seen on pictures of war veterans or victims of some disaster. A glassy, faraway stare. There was something in the sky. What was it? His voice shook as though he was close to tears. I don't know, I answered, surprised by the sound of my own voice. We, we should call the cops or something, the National Guard, the Air Force. Clay cried, his voice cracking as fear and panic still overwhelmed him. I nodded, head still throbbing and mind racing as I went for my cell phone. A feeling like cold water being dumped overhead made the blood freeze in my veins. No signal. I shook my head. There's no service. Clay's face contorted into a look that was a mix of surprise, denial, and terror. As he pulled his phone from his pocket, Philip did the same, handshaking all the while. No one said anything, the two of them staring at their phones with variations of the same expression. They didn't need to say a word. I knew what it meant. Let's just go, I said. I struggled to my feet the world seeming to spin beneath me for a moment as I gripped a chair for balance. I helped Phil to his feet, his eyes never once leaving the skies beyond the broken windows. Clay led the way, grimacing as his arms continued to run with blood. As we made our way outside, I could tell immediately that something was deeply wrong. That smell hung thick in the air still, but it was more than that. The streets were emptier than before. They're gone. Everything is gone. And Clay spoke the thought aloud, just as a cold and awful realization dawned on me. The cars were gone now. Both the empty vehicles that had previously lined much of the streets and Clay's own truck, all gone. All of the vehicles but for one. My own sedan left idling in the middle of the street. With all that happened, my memory was spotty, but I felt certain that, that was not where I had left it. Clay shook his head, moving aimlessly about the street, head on a swivel, searching for his vehicle to no avail. Finally, he let out a scream, long and full of rage that echoed through the empty streets. Phil just kept shaking his head, muttering something to himself. I hardly had the time to react as Clay made his approach, throwing up my hands to partially block the punch he threw. I felt a shock in my jaw and for a moment I felt heat in my face. 
for a split second, the world disappearing behind darkness and flecks of light. The commotion seemed to kick Philip from his stupor, and he grabbed a hold of Clay, pulling him away from me. This was your idea, he cried, accusation heavy in his tone. I ran my hand along my jaw. My lower lip was bleeding slightly, but I was otherwise okay with the exception of the sting in my face. I know that I ought to have left it alone, but I was scared and angry, days and months of emotions coming to the surface. You didn't have to come. I didn't make you listen. What is wrong with you? I cried, taking a step closer. Clay laughed, but it was a sound without any genuine humor, mocking and belittling. You're a snide, self-assured, horrible man. Always have been, he said, his words coated in a palpable venom. But even worse, a sort of confident assuredness that spoke of a conviction behind them, as though he had thought these things for quite a while. It's the reason we're the only two people still willing to put up with you. It's the reason for where you are in life with that dead-end job. And it's the reason that Tracy left. You can't even consider someone else's right. You chide and chide, and make stupid comments until they finally give in to you. I wanted to feel something. Anger, hate, an urge to hit him back even, but I couldn't. A part of me could only sit in the recognition that... In some ways, he was right. Stop it, Clay. This isn't the time, Phil said, putting himself between the two of us. We need to go, he turned to me. We're going to have to use your car. Are you okay to drive? I nodded, though my thoughts were still on Clay's own words. Then let's go. Clay's eyes lingered on me for a moment, and I thought that I could see his expression softening before he turned and made for the car. I followed it until we reached the car. The faint winds moving through the buildings were the only noise to accompany us. My mind raised. Clay's words, the call from earlier, and whatever had happened in the diner all spinning through my head in a vortex of thought. But none of it made sense. This place, that thing in the sky, the cars, it was impossible. I knew that as we left it behind, it would always bother me, like a picture left askew. This blind spot and what I knew to be possible. Hello? Hello? Is anyone there? A voice echoed through the empty streets. A woman's by the sound of it, carried from somewhere that seemed both near and distantly behind us. It froze all three of us in place. The same question passed slightly between us as though nobody wanted to be the first one to ask whether anybody else had heard it. Hello? The voice again, except this time I felt certain it was somewhere ahead. Phil snapped to face it, the fear that had seemingly dissipated slowly returning to the surface, his eyes darting around nervously. And Clay looked at me hard, shaking his head slowly as though he could hear my thoughts. I narrowed my eyes, holding back none of the bitterness that I felt. So some woman is alone wandering this place with whatever that thing is and you want to leave her. Looking back, I can't account for the sudden defiance that I felt. Perhaps my ego had finally caught up with the earlier wounds. Or perhaps the idea of leaving somebody here felt too much like the failure of my relationship. I can't be certain. 
Likely, I would need the help of a therapist over days of work to understand, and days I do not have. Clay looked as though he wanted to spit in my face, shaking his head, eyes filled with something cold and unrecognizing. You're a fool, he said, and you're going to get one of us killed for it. He's, he's right, Phil stammered, though he looked as though he dreaded the words. It wouldn't be right to leave her. Clay scoffed, looking between the two of us and shaking his head. Whatever, he relented, climbing into the back seat and letting the door slam shut behind him. Phil scanned the ground for a moment, sighing for a long moment before looking back at me. He's pissed, understandably, but I'm sure that he gets it. Let's just see if we can find whoever that was. He nodded for me to follow as he made his way towards the car, pausing for a moment. He met my eyes. Just promise you won't get out of the car. We'll drive around and look and if we can't find anyone, we go. I nodded. Yeah, okay. I promise. And with that, he made his way into the car. I followed, feeling suddenly very claustrophobic in the vehicle as we began to make our way through the streets. Just listen for her, I said, rolling down all four of the windows as we began moving through the streets at random, listening for any sign of the person that we had heard before. At some point, I began calling out, much to Clay's dismay, shouting for anyone to respond. It wasn't long before eventually someone did. Please help me, it's coming. That voice again, much more clear this time coming from a few streets away within one of the residential areas. I veered left onto the road from where I could hear it coming. My foot settled on the gas and unusual determination swelling in me as the calls grew louder until we arrived outside a house. It was no different than the others, a single story, a red brick home, with all the windows drawn but one, and yet the sight of it sent chills down my spine. The front door sat wide open, yet I could see nothing inside. Clay was already shaking his head when I turned to face them. No, no way look at that place, it's not right. He trailed off, unable to put the feeling to words. I knew what he meant, I felt it too. We all could, staring back at the entrance like the maw of some animal. And yet as that voice echoed from within, I felt stirred by an uncharacteristic sort of boldness. It's fine, I said. I'm not going to push it. Just wait here, I'll be back. Clay scoffed and Phil just looked down with sad eyes, nodding almost to himself. Then I'm coming. Clay looked ready to explode, staring at Philip as though he had grown another head. You always go along with this BS, he said. Eyes narrowed as he looked at Philip. Whatever, I'm staying here, you two have fun. If you're not back in 10 minutes, I'm leaving without you both. I wanted to argue, but I knew it would accomplish nothing. So instead, I gave a brief nod and exited the car. Phil hurried from the back seat, following behind and decorated the sound of the door's automatic lock as we made some distance. The closer we came to that front door, the more that I could see the house inside, with a standard foyer and living room. Nothing unusual but for the utter state of disarray that it was left in. Shelves were toppled and furniture overturned, 
various things scattered about the floor as though a tornado had somehow moved through the place. Somehow the opening felt eerie as though what lay on the other side was more than a mere house, but some other world in which something awful had happened. A part of me wondered if Clay wasn't right, and considered turning back on the spot. But the idea filled my mouth with an awful taste of the satisfaction I knew it would bring him. So, spurred forth by my own ego, I stepped inside. The smell was immediate, like sitting too close to an old television set, just an acrid static that singed at your nose hairs. As was the feeling of a sort of chill that gripped me, it made my stomach turn with nausea, my vision buzzing momentarily. It looks worse than the diner when we left, Phil commented, looking over one of the few coffee tables still on its feet. I nodded, the implications of the thought making me feel uneasy. Broken glass crunched beneath my feet as I stepped forward, peering into the kitchen. On the wall hung a photo, a man and a woman and three children. I felt something shift in me as I wondered where all of the individuals were now and if anybody would ever know. I wondered who it was that we had heard. There was another question that was clawing at the back of my mind, one that I didn't want to acknowledge yet and I couldn't ignore. Would we join them if I couldn't find her soon? Help me! The cry echoed from somewhere deeper in the house, sudden and shrill, making me jump as I spun to face it. Phil's reaction was the same, our eyes meeting as we searched for the source, settling on a door in the hallway ahead. Even at a distance, I could see the tremors that took him, and I didn't feel far off myself, but I was there for a reason. You don't have to follow me, I said in earnest as it began to make my way forth. Somehow, by the echo from behind the door, I knew there was a basement on the other side. I didn't have to look to know that Philip was behind me, breathing nervously and muttering barely silent prayers. I opened the door and we began to descend into the darkness below, hands feeling along the wall for a light switch. I felt something brush past my cheek, a string hanging overhead and upon pulling it, a dim bulb sputtered to life, offering what little light it could manage. It did little to illuminate let lie in the basement beyond, only really serving to cast eerie shadows along the stairwell, but at least we could see where our feet were to land. Help me, help! That voice again, but not nearly as loud as before or as urgent. I felt one of those unearthly chills, as though my body were warning of something that I couldn't yet perceive, and it frightened me. Do you see her? Phil whispered, voice still shaking as he stepped behind me, kneeling slightly as if worried standing at his full height might attract something's attention. It took me a moment to realize that I was doing the same. No, I can't see a thing. I breathed back, gritting my teeth at the squeal of the staircase beneath my feet. Feeling its weight in my pocket, I remembered my phone. It had been all but useless since we had been attacked by whatever that thing was, but the function of a flashlight was the one thing I knew it could still serve. I shined the light onto the ground below, a gray cement slab that seemed to extend through the entire room. Help, please. 
That voice, again this time so small it was barely more than a whisper from, somewhere around the corner. We turned into the basement, the light exposing a small hallway ahead, leading to a boiler room. In the hall sat a door, closed, though I could see a light glowing beneath it, and I could hear the woman's voice from within. I glanced back and fell, his eyes never wavering from the door and he simply nodded. We pushed forth. Help, please. The nearer that I grew to the door, the more my skin began to crawl. Something off about the voice in a way that I could only now process. There was an odd hiss to it, a mechanical crackle that I couldn't place. Hands shaking, I pushed the door open. The room was dark, only the glow of an old television set to prevent total blindness. Do you smell that? Philip asked. I nodded, the same ozone scent hanging heavy in the air. It took a moment to process what I was hearing, but as it began to click, confusion and dread filled me in equal measure. Help me, help, the voice echoed from the television. That doesn't make any sense, Philip said, voice no longer a whisper as a familiar dread filled his words. We heard it from blocks away. That's impossible. The light on the screen seemed to shine with such sudden force that it temporarily blinded us, bathing the room in an eerie white light, the old box set glowing like a supernova. The air seemed poised to set alight, the electric stench so strong that I could feel my lungs burning. There was another crash. The house shook, threatening to collapse in on us as that awful sound rocked the earth. The screen of the old television burst in a shower of sparks and glass, scattering across the room. Phil's eyes met mine, a primal sort of terror filling them as his hands clasped over his ears. Something like a shriek, ancient and animal, but put through a computer filter or something of the sort, pierced the air seeming to come from everywhere at once. All I could do in those moments was cover my ears and pray until the awful cacophony ceased and the air took on that eerie stillness. It took a moment before either of us moved, myself first, scrambling for the phone that I had dropped in the commotion, before hurrying to help Philip up to his feet. What was that? What the heck was that? He asked, shock still working its way through him. Come on, I urged, pulling him towards the way that we had come and answer already in my mind. We have to go check on Clay now. That seemed to stir him, and the two of us raced out of the house, in worse condition than it had been before and out into the front yard. The weather had seemingly shifted in the minutes that we had spent inside, the clouds dark and foreboding, wind whipping leaves from trees and lashing its tendrils across my face. The car was gone, the space that it had occupied almost mockingly empty, that stench filling the air. There was no sign of clay, and something told me that there wouldn't be any longer. It got him. I hardly realized that I was speaking the words as I did, my mind putting two and two together. That thing tricked us, and it got him. The swell of emotion I felt threatened to send me into a freefall. He was here because of me, and we were on this trip for me, 
and it was my choice that had gotten him into this and now. God, and now what? I couldn't even be sure of what I was guilty. Couldn't even be certain whether I had gotten my friend killed or simply whisked off to some unknown fate. He was right. Philip breathed, tears streaming openly as he stared at the spot the car had once occupied, as if at any second it could return. The wind picked up, sending ominous whispers through the trees and tracing an icy chill down my back. We should have left. We, we should have gone when we had the chance. It's gonna get us now. His tone was almost childlike, past the point of fear, almost as though he were stating the dreaded reality. I shook my head, stepping in front of him and gripping him by the shoulders. Phil, we have to go now. We can, we can walk. I spoke, though in hindsight I think even I wasn't convinced by my own words. This place isn't that big. It would take maybe half an hour, 40 minutes. We could just stick to the main road and walk out of here. Phil laughed, a sound devoid of humor or mocking or any sort of emotion, cold and harsh. It's not going to let us go. It gave us that chance and we didn't take it. Don't you see? The skies above seemed to groan and rumble as warning of an approaching storm and yet, no signs of lightning were to be seen. The wind grew stronger, whipping my jacket about with such force that it almost moved me. Philip just shook his head, staring up at the sky. Too late. And then a crash. The air itself seemed to shake as a sound like the sky tearing open above us threatened to deafen me. The sky above was an ominous gray, every cloud swelling with the threats of a torrential rain. And at first, I could see nothing but the sunlight filtered gray through the mist. And then there was movement. Brief at first, a flash of something dark enough that the sun couldn't pierce it as it passed between an area where the cloud cover was just a bit lighter. Everything shook, my very bones seeming to move out of place as the sky seemed to split in half. In that moment, it cast a circular shadow almost 30 feet ahead, passing over the street like some new celestial body. If you've never seen something impossible, witness something your mind knows inherently to be wrong. No matter how hard it seems to grapple for some sort of understanding, you can never understand what I felt in that moment. I found myself grasping for answers, a nauseating sense of horror racking my body. It's, it's a weather balloon or, I could find no words, every explanation falling flat in the face of the impossible. Its shape was circular, a perfect sphere with nothing resembling a wings or flaps or rudders. It was a pale white, so much so that it almost reflected the light like another sun in the sky. The air hung thick with the smell and taste of ozone so much so that I couldn't help but cough violently. It was gone again, disappearing into the clouds. Moving with such sudden speed, I knew it depended on more than the wind. For several moments we saw no sight of it above, and yet the sound of its movement grew until the ground seemed to shake. It's coming closer, 
I spoke the realization, voice hoarse as I sputtered another cough, eyes meeting Phil's. He smiled sadly, and in that moment I understood that I had to flee. I didn't wait for Phil to follow, my legs pounding as I ran back towards the house and away from that thing. The entire world seemed to shake, the air itself somehow vibrating until I could feel it in my bones. A glance over my shoulder told me why, as I passed the side of the house we had just exited. I caught sight of the object descending until it was barely 30 feet or so off the ground. It was bigger than I had imagined, at least the size of three school buses in length, and by the look of it, it seemed entirely composed of some pale metallic substance, almost like a reflective marble. I lost sight of it as I neared the car, but I knew very well that it was directly overhead. It made a sound, like the bellow of some horrid ancient beast that had been run through autotune as it closed in on him, growing closer and closer until I could feel it, feel the static that seemed to radiate forth from it. It didn't stop, even as the mechanical roar rose to a fever pitch, combining with a human shriek to form a sound so awful, I'm sure that it would haunt me for the rest of my life, if I expected that to be long. I chanced a singular glance over my shoulder before passing beyond the house and into its backyard, and what I saw I still can't be sure of. It was as though Philip's body was dissolving coming apart in ribbons of flesh. The air around it visibly warped by some sort of energy that seemed to pour forth from that thing, floating like another moon a few feet above his head. I kept running until there was nothing but the sound of my own breath and pounding heart, long after silence had settled over the town. As shock began to take effect, the adrenaline wearing off and leaving me feeling bruised, battered, scared, and alone. I found my way into the local public library. That's where I've been for the past few hours. I'm staying off the streets. It's not safe. That thing could descend on me at any time and do God knows what. I'm writing this because, well, because I've done all that I can to try and reach out for help. To no avail. There is little else in the silence for me to do but perhaps try and write some account of what happened here, in the off chance that anybody finds themselves wondering about the town of Criers Creek, or the even more unlikely scenario that they're wondering about me. To Clay and Phil's families, if you're seeing this and still remember them, I'm sorry, I never meant for this to happen. And to whoever is reading this, be willing to trust the people around you sometimes and stay away from Criers Creek. There is something in the skies above, something that has claimed this place as its own. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.